Welcome to the Bethany Community Church Sermon Podcast. This ministry is intended to inspire you and help bring solutions to the challenges of life. Today's message is titled, The Secret of Marriage, and it is part of the Meaning of Marriage Sermon Series. For more information about other ministries here at Bethany Community Church, you can visit us at our website at bccma.org, or you could always send us an email at office at bccma.org. And now, here's Pastor Phil McCutcheon. Well, I'm excited about a new series today. I always love new series. It's kind of like kind of like bringing a new baby home, right? For me, get to take care of it and feed it, and like a, maybe it's like a grandchild. You get to send him home, you know. Ellie was over last night. She was going to spend the night, but she decided not to. <laughs> but I go up. She's she's trying to get out of the the, the little crib there, or whatever you call it, the play and pack out of that thing. And I and she's trying to get out. So I give her a hug. She said, "I don't want hugs. I want a cookie break." <laughs> a cookie break. <laughs> Have you ever feel like that? I don't want a hug. I want a cookie break. <laughs> For this reason, the, a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must look, love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 through 33. I'd appreciate you guys could put that on the screen for the folks. Thank you. Um, now, as we talk about marriage for the next few weeks, um, I want you to understand, I realize marriage is not available to everyone, and there's some of you that, for, by your own choice, it's not available to you, and some of you not by your choice. But, but I want to try to show you in this series why God calls all of us to be marriage builders, and why it is central to what God to, to, to what God wants to do. It doesn't mean everybody has to be married or needs to be married or even wants to be married. That's not the point. The point is this institution called marriage has, has divine origins and divine purpose. And it's, and, and it's not just optional. It's not an optional thing that the church exalt marriage and minister to marriage. So I pray that we can all find our place in the marriage narrative, single or married. We can all find our place in the family and marriage narrative that God has for the world. Apostle Paul said a marriage is a profound mystery. If something is a profound mystery, wouldn't it be good to find out what the mystery is? Um, you've heard about the guy, who, 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 the married guy, who said, I used to want to know what made my wife tick, and now I'm happy just not to get her wound up. <laughs> he gave up on the mystery. God treated marriage as the most important primary relationship in the world. No other creature besides man had its mate created from within himself. All the, all the animals, all the, all the mammals mated, but only, only humans had one partner created out of the inside of the other partner. I got a feeling there's some depth of information there. God officiated at the first wedding. God established the human race and all human systems on, 
on this system of marriage. God uses marriage as a human object lesson of the divine relationship with his spiritual bride. In that scripture we read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 through 33. Does this mean that everybody needs to be married or should be married? Or even will necessarily be happier if they are married? Absolutely not. Apostle Paul, who writes these words, as best we can tell, was not married. Some believe he had been married because he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. So some believe he was married, and we don't know what happened. But we know that wasn't a part of his life. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about his own singleness. So here's Paul writing about marriage, and he wasn't married himself. God established marriage as, 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 a, as a first divine institution before the church. And God uses marriage, as I said, as a human object lesson of a divine relationship. The first image of humans in Genesis is as a married couple. The last image of humankind in the Bible is, is as the bride of Christ. Does this mean, you know, let, let's, let's examine this today. We don't exalt marriage because it's preferable to be married, but because it's foundational. Uh, in its image of our it's it's foundational in our relationship with our image with God with our relationship with God, and uh, uh, every every single parent in the room would certainly attest to me that it's optimal to raise children with a partner. You don't you don't all have that privilege, and it doesn't mean you have to fail. In fact, many of you are doing an amazing job at it. But, um, but we still, in fact, I, I would say to singles and single parents in the room and watching by live stream as well, I would say to you that uh, the marriages in the church are supposed to be helpful to you. The married couples in the church, if we do this thing right, and, and sometimes we get it right, admittedly sometimes we don't. I've had, I've had single moms in my office let me know we weren't doing it well enough. <laughs> And I take, I take your, your uh, criticism, or however you want to put it, your counsel to me, I take it to heart. And so I'm trying to help us get better and better at being a better support to you. And so the married couples in the church, if we understand our, 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 our importance, we will be a resource to the single parents in our church to help them with that task. But let's talk about what are the forces that steal the profound secret of marriage. Paul said it's a profound secret, but we see in the culture today, it's not seen as a profound divine mystery or divine secret for, or, or even something from God. Uh, so let me give you a few things that I believe are causing us to, to, to miss and have stolen this profound secret of marriage. By the way, I, I, I failed to mention something very important. This series is founded on Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. So I would encourage you, I believe it's the best single book ever written on marriage, is, is, is The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. Uh, you, you agree, Steve? You're shaking your head. I believe it's the best single book ever written on marriage. I, I like, uh, for a secular book, I like, uh, the, I like uh, 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 Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. Is a great book as well. But, but Meaning of Marriage is the best, especially from a biblical theological perspective. I think it's the best book. So I decided, we decided several months ago to base a series on that book. So I encourage you to go download that book or order it. You can have it with Amazon. You can have it in two days. 
at your house. I encourage you to read this book. So a lot of things I'm going to say are taken right out of that. So uh, what are the forces that are stealing the profound secret of marriage today? First of all, we have a culture that's trying to deconstruct almost everything. Um, A uh, Marxist uh, activist uh, many years ago uh, during World War II was Antonio Gramsci, and he was sitting in a uh, he was sitting in a uh, uh, jail cell, and uh, he was put in jail by Mussolini. And Antonio Gramsci uh, was meditating on why the um, why why the Marxist Revolution had failed. And as he, as he thought about it, he decided that what caused it to fail, it was only focused on economics and was focused on the, 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 the it was only, only, only a rebellion of workers. And he, de, and he decided the problem wasn't economic, but the problem was cultural. And so Antonio Gramsci decided that the problem was that, that society had gatekeepers. And these gatekeepers were deciding what the norms of culture would be And so these gatekeepers created institutions and roles in those institutions that kept them in power. And so he began to view all every, he began to believe that the way to really have the Marxist revolution succeed was to get everyone to view everything through the lens of power and oppression. And so that all the institutions that were being supported by the gatekeepers of arts, industry, media, and, uh, and, and any other uh, in, in politics, those gatekeepers were keeping certain institutions and elevating certain institutions because it kept certain people in power. In other words, the institution of marriage kept men in power over women and over children and so on and so forth. And, and so he decided that, that and he, he, he called it, he came up with the word, you may have heard it, the word hegemony. He came with the word cultural hegemony. And so the cultural hegemony, and you know, we saw this if you, if you lived as I did through the early 60s and late 50s, you remember, if you remember, all the TV shows that showed the family had a stereotypical family. Father knows best, leave it to Beaver. The, 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 the man was always amazing, you know, and right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and the wife was always smiling and serving the man and all that. So, so, so they would say that's cultural hegemony to create a concept of, uh, a, of what, what marriage and family is supposed to like. It's not totally crazy, by the way. It's not totally insane because this really happens. Of course, the problem, the problem with it really is they replace one hegemony with another. So because so, uh, so, so, it's inevitable that you're going to have norms established in society. But that's not my point. Then, uh, then uh, uh, Rudy Duchke, was, who was a, a communist uh, activist in the 60s, early 70s, he came up with, the, he came up with this phrase, uh, the long march to the institution. So, so this idea that, that Antonio Gramsci created got, got put into the colleges and universities, and we, we came up with all these, all these ideas. And I'm not trying to educate you on that at all today. I just want you to know there's, there's, a, there's a belief out there that's permeated the culture that all institutions, including the church, needs to be reconstructed. All roles need to be, de- not reconstructed, deconstructed. In fact, one of the stars of a film called Monogamy, 
which criticizes monogamy actually, said in an interview, in this country we have kind of failed with marriage. We're so protective of this really sacred but failed institution. There's got to be a new model. You know, having said all that I just said, um, there's really no serious sustained argument today that society can do without marriage. It really is not working. You know, uh, I don't know if Jay is still in the room. I think Jay's still in the room. I know Jay and, and Jared and the guys that run uh, Stop, Go, Love will tell you that the marriage industry is alive and well. <laughs> People are still getting married. They're having weddings. But do they understand the purpose of marriage? Or is it all about an event that they spend thousands and tens of thousands of dollars on? I don't know. Uh, but, but that's one thing. is a culture that's trying to deconstruct almost everything. And you're hearing that everywhere right today. Everything needs to be deconstructed. And we need to come up with a new pattern. Okay? And, uh, and, and the Bible itself is viewed as that. Another thing is we just have bad information and false messages about marriage. Uh, the, the messages are that most marriages are unhappy. And, that, and the second message is that cohabiting is just as good as being married. In fact, the message is that cohabiting before marriage increases the chances of a happy marriage. But, uh, you know, here's what one person said in a Gallup survey. They said, everyone I know who's gotten married and quickly, quickly and failed to live together has gotten divorced. That's what one guy said. But what's wrong with these assumptions? What's wrong with these assumptions that, that, that every, most people are unhappily married and living together and cohabiting is just as good as being married? Well, uh, by far the greatest... Uh, uh, these assumptions are wrong. Let me just say it that way. By far the greatest percentage of divorces happens to those who marry before the age of 18, drop out of high school, and have a baby together. That's the greatest percentage of these divorces that happen. There are a lot of divorces. A 1992 study of retirement shows individuals who were continuously married had 75% more wealth at retirement than those who never married. Um, married men earn 10 to 40% more than single men with similar education and job histories. This is all from the meaning of marriage. Marriage is shown to provide shock absorbers that help you manage life's disappointments. Generally speaking, marriage matures our character, generally speaking. Do you know that 61 to 62% of married people report they are happily married? So this is a myth that most people are unhappily married. If you were to establish any business and you had, you had 62% customer satisfaction, you would have a very successful business. Okay, so let's move on. What are some other reasons we have missed the meaning of marriage and the secret of marriage? I believe one of the main reasons is we've replacing, we replace primary purposes with secondary purposes. First Timothy 6.17 is not about marriage. It's about money, but it makes the same point. It clarifies prima, the primary and secondary purposes of money. It says, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of life that is truly eternal. So what's Paul's talking about money here, and he's saying, he's saying the primary purpose of, of, of money 
The primary purpose of money is not to, to make you happy and successful, but to make you a blessing to others. That's the primary purpose of money. But he goes on to say, it's okay to enjoy wealth. It's okay to enjoy money. Because he's, he's saying what C.S. Lewis said a long time ago. C.S. Lewis made this amazing quote. He said, put first thing first, and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. If the primary purpose of marriage, that, and we believe the secret of a good marriage, is that if it makes us happy, that's putting secondary things first. And we're gonna, we'll get it before we're done here, hopefully in the next few minutes, we'll, we'll identify what the primary purpose of marriage is. But if it, we have many, many people today that are frustrated in marriage because they're putting the secondary purpose first, and because they're putting the secondary first, they're, first, they're not discovering the primary purpose. I'm glad you like that. Thank you. And, and, and apply that to everything in your life. I don't care if it's church or work or any, any arena of your life. Putting first things first, God will bless you, bless you with the secondary. In fact, there's a scripture, Melissa, that says, if seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, God knows how to make the things you want happen for you. It's kind of like this. Um, somebody said it this way to me one time. If you'll take care of the king's business, the king will take care of your business. And you can't take care of your business as well as the king can. Amen? Amen. Amen. See, when I get encouragement, I stay on a point. You don't. <laughs> Another reason we, we've cast aside the, uh, the, the secret of marriage and the high, is a high view of feelings and a low view of God. Western consumer Christianity has pulled God off the throne where he had authority based on his superior wisdom, and we've made him our cosmic therapist, our divine life coach and super servant, strictly utilitarian in his purpose. And we, we have a high view of our needs and what we feel and what we feel makes us happy and a low view of God's superior wisdom. You, Tim Keller talks about a 16-year-old girl in his church who was very unhappy because she couldn't uh, get a, have a, she didn't have a boyfriend. And he's talking to her one day about the things of God. She said, I know that, that Jesus died for my sins, and I know that he loves me, and I know that he redeemed me, and I know that I'm, I'm going to spend eternity with him in heaven, and, 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 and we're going to come back to earth, and, and God's going to restore the earth, this planet, and all of that. She said, I know all of that, but what does that matter if you can't get a date? We have a high view of our feelings and a low view of God. Another, another, uh, another, pro, another reason we dismiss and miss the mystery of marriage is the myth of finding the right person. Tim Keller says we always marry the wrong person. <laughs> we, we never know he says this, we never know whom we marry, we just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we're not the same person after we've entered into it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. <laughs> John Tierney uh, wrote this uh, article back in 1995, but it's so funny. It's uh, in uh, New, uh, the New York Times. 
he wrote this article called Picky, Picky, Picky and the Flaw-O-Matic. <laughs> he, he was talking about how New York City in particular has a higher percentage of singles than any, I think, any city in the United States. There are more people that are single in, in the city of New York than, than any other place. And so he's examining why this is. And he comes up with the, with the conclusion, pretty unscientific, but he comes up with the conclusion that we're so picky is the reason. And, and he says, um, he went to the personal ads and he, he read some of them. One of them said, not willing to settle, neither am I. And it was placed by a woman who loves all New York has to offer. And she was looking for a, a, someone who was handsome, over foot, five foot nine, and between 29 and 35. She and her the fellow advertisers could find flaws in most of the planet's population. One woman required a man over five foot ten who played polo. A bachelor sought a cosmopolitan, earthy, high, positive, energy, curvaceous, sympathetic woman. Sympatica, I got that wrong. Sympatica woman, 35 to 42, who has resolved all her control drama. <laughs> a, lawyer, a lawyer, after listing 21 prerequisite qualities in his princes, said he was astonished to find himself unattached. He goes, says in the article, they are afflicted with what I call the flaw-o-matic. You can find, think of the flaw-o-matic as an inner voice, a little whirring device inside the brain that instantly spots a flaw in any potential mate. In, in, in a show that was on back then called Love Connection with, with Chuck Woolery, I'm sure you were an avid watcher, those of you who were around those days. A guy says this, listen to this. A guy said, well, it started out great. The young woman began, she opened the door and she looked fantastic. Beautiful face, great body, nice smile. Everything was going fine until she turned around. He paused ominously and shook his head. Chuck, he said sadly, she had dirty elbows. <laughs> and that was that. The guy went through the rest of the day knowing the relationship was doomed. Other examples uh, from the show is... Uh, he couldn't date her anymore because she mis mispronounced goth. Uh, how could I take him seriously after seeing The Road Less Traveled on his bookshelf? <laughs> if she would just lose seven pounds. Sure, he's a partner, one said, but he's not in a big firm. And he wears those short black socks. Keller says, Tim Keller says, it seems almost oxymoronic to believe that this new idealism has led to a new pessimism about marriage, but that is exactly what has happened in the generations past. There was far less talk about compatibility and finding the ideal soulmate. Today, we are looking for someone who accepts us as we are and fulfills our desires, and this creates an unrealistic set of expectations that frustrates both the searcher and the search for both men and women today see marriage not as a way of creating character and community, but as a way to reach personal goals. So, I've talked to you mostly today about why we are disillusioned with marriage and why we are missing the deep, profound, amazing purpose of God that would help us not to worry about dirty elbows. 
Paul uses the term mystery. I want to talk to you secondly today about the faith that restores a solid foundation for marriage. Paul uses the term secret here, uh, or, or mystery. Neither term, secret or mystery, means that it doesn't mean it's something that can't be known or something hidden from our inspection. What it means, it's something deep and profound that's going on in this dance called marriage. The only part that's mysterious is that it requires God to give us a proper profoundness, and it takes the Holy Spirit to bring it to our understanding to show us how to walk it out. The word mysterion is, means not a secret, but rather someone, mysterious, someone wondrous, unlooked, some wondrous unlooked for truth that God is revealing through his spirit. The secret, here it is, the secret is the primary purpose of marriage is to mirror Christ's relationship with the church. I said the primary purpose of marriage is to mirror Christ's relationship with the church. Romans 5, 1, 4, we, are str- we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbor for his good, to build them up, for even Christ did not please himself, but it's written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scripture, the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. See, when God designed marriage, he already had Christ in the church in mind. In the book of Genesis. Jesus, when he was on earth, didn't use his power to oppress, but to sacrifice everything for us. Jesus looked beyond our faults and saw our needs. Marriage only works. Let me say this. Marriage only works to the degree that it approximates God's self-giving love of Christ. It only works to the degree that it approximates God's self-giving love which is in Christ and the church finding its purpose in honoring the Lord. When God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Christ in mind. Like the gospel, marriage is both wonderful and painful. See, let me say this. A gospel-centered marriage accommodates neither the extremes of male-centered dominance, nor the extremes of much of the modern feminist movement. What what about my personal fulfillment and self-realization? I'm sure you're asking that. What about my personal fulfillment? What about what I need to make me happy? Well, we've already made that case today that God really cares about that. That God, in fact, will make... God, God, in fact, has a better way of getting getting to that than you do. And you and I will spoil it. I'm, I'm telling you something about, about relationships. And the, the principle, these principles work in all relationships. Greater intimacy that you desire almost always is after you get through the tunnel of conflict. When you survive the tunnel of conflict, it will take you to deeper intimacy. There is no other way to deeper intimacy than, than through the tunnel of conflict. And to the, to the tunnel of honesty and conflict. And, and you know that's true. And many, many people walk out of, quit relationships way too soon. Many people quit churches and, and friendships and community groups and, and, and marriages. We quit them too soon because we don't know, we don't understand. We, we look at confrontation and unhappiness as a signal that it's not working. But it really is a signal that God is calling you to make it work at a deeper level. 
It's really a signal that God wants to take you deeper with that other person. God wants to take you to a place where that, that relationship is more, more authentic and more real. And that authentic and that relationship is more powerful. And if you don't understand the purpose of disagreement and the purpose of conflict, it's not to end the relationship, but to build it. Amen. The Christian teaching does not offer a choice between fulfillment and sacrifice but rather mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. The reason that marriage is so painful and yet so wonderful is because it is a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful all at once. That's Tim Keller. Finally, let's talk and close our talk today about refinding the gospel in marriage. There's a simple path to living out the mystery of the gospel in our marriage. Because of the gospel, we are forgiven. All of life is about forgiveness. Forgiveness is the core principle. That's one thing I discovered when we were teaching on the Lord's Prayer through our week of prayer. One thing I discovered is that forgiveness is woven throughout the Lord's Prayer. It It begins with me forgiving God. Because when I look to Him and say, My Father which art in heaven, hallowed, you are you are holy. I'm saying, God, you are right. Holy means kept right. Holy means perfect. Holy means never made a mistake. So forgive, our, our life with God begins with, God, I forgive you for, and, and you may not think of it that way. You may not think of it as forgiving God, but you really are because you're saying, God, everything you've brought to my life and everything that you've allowed to happen, I am going to accept it. And I'm going to stop being resentful of you. And I'm going to stop being bitter toward you, God. And I'm going to stop blaming you for the problems of the world and the problems of my life. So our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God, I exalt you. Every bit of the Lord's prayer is about forgiveness. So, you can't live out the gospel with another person if you can't forgive them. Because the gospel... We are forgiven. We are forgiven. So it, it's two sides of the same coin. That yes, I, I have to forgive you. I forgive my, my spouse. But I am also forgiven. I'm also forgiven for my mistakes and my flaws and, and the pain that I bring to the marriage. I'm also forgiven. Because of the gospel, we're accepted. You know this dance, we live with one another, and you remember the, when we used to pull the wishbone when we were kids? She loves me, she, and that's, that's what a relationship with another person is, is like sometimes. Is, do they accept me today? Do I accept them today? Am I rejecting her today? Is she rejecting me? Well, what if you find your acceptance in Jesus What if you find your validation in Jesus, you would take a lot of pressure off of him or her if you were totally secure in who you are in Jesus? That's what a gospel-centered marriage is about. A gospel-centered marriage is because of the gospel, we have have hope. We have hope. Oh, we have some stories in this room of marriages that were beyond hope. Beyond hope, and many of us remember a couple that used to be here, and they gave their testimony on this, on this very platform. They gave their testimony, and many of you know who I'm talking about. The husband actually got involved in an extramarital relationship, 
and, and uh, took out a, a, a contract on his wife to have her taken out. He got caught, went to prison, accepted Jesus, and they were restored. That, only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can do that. Because of the gospel, we have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because of the God, we have the Holy Spirit in our, in our, in our house. Holy Spirit in our, our marriage. The Holy Spirit in our relationship to convict us, to lead us, to guide us. Because of the gospel, we have the pers- persistent example of faith, hope, and love. Because of the gospel, we have the power to fight for love. Now, out of this redemptive dance, we are committed to invite a world that is wondering if the hope of the gospel still works. We want to be able to say, watch the redemptive power of the gospel in action with the married couples in our church. Paul, or John said, as I have loved you, just as the words of Jesus, as I have loved you, you must love one another. See, we're all taught, we're all taught to see ourselves as as an object of Christ's intense affection, right? That's foundational. That's preached everywhere today, that God loves you, and God loves you unconditionally. Isn't that... I don't, I'm not pushing back against that. I'm not saying that the church is wrong today to have a huge major emphasis on making sure people know that God loves them. It's filled in sermons. Go on the internet today and you watch pastor's sermons. There's sermon after sermon after sermon telling people to view themselves not in, not in shame, but as objects of God's love. There are songs. The songs we sing are filled with don't see yourself as an object of shame. The past is forgiven. It's all done. We are, we, are, uh, we are a bit obsessed today with seeing ourselves as object of God's affection, which, which is great because that's the core of the gospel, isn't it? However, do you see your spouse as an object of God's affection? Do you see them in the light of the gospel? Or do they not get the same does God maybe not like them as much as he likes you? <laughs> uh, I would say you're a bit off. You need to see your spouse in Jesus. See her in Jesus. See him in Jesus. And, hey, guess what? Primary purposes? I know you want to have fun in your marriage. I know you want to have a blast. I know you want, to, you want good days, and there will be good days. There will be more good days if you create the best you can a gospel-centered marriage. You'll have more good days. God will, God, God will bless you. The Bible says he daily loaded us with benefits. Try it God's way. Try it God's way. Give, get, let, me, let me give you a challenge. Try God's way for 90 days and then get back to me and tell me how it worked. You know, you heard about the story. I've told it a few times about the woman who uh, went to see a, a pastor and she was going to divorce her husband. And he's just so horrible. And she, the pastor said, you know what? You really want to hurt him? Don't divorce him yet. For the next 30 days, be the most amazing wife he ever had. Provide, you know, cook his favorite food, 
go to the places he wants to go, just compliment everything. I mean, if he washes a dish, you just go crazy, like he did the greatest thing ever, right? So she said, okay. And she said, he said, then at the end, tell him you're, you're divorcing him. So she, he saw her sometime later, said, how'd it go? The divorce got, went fine, right? She said, no, we, we just, we're happily married now. <laughs> See? You take the responsibility. You pick up the burden. You pick it up. Male or female, I don't care which one of you, you pick it up and say, I'm going to carry the gospel into my marriage. And let's see what God can do. And those of you that aren't married, you've got relationships that have very similar dynamics to marriage. Take the gospel into those relationships. And you can change your world. God bless.